We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. At the moment, we're speaking with built environment professionals about empathetic projects with really challenging briefs and how they approach the design of building typologies that are politically or ethically charged. Our guest in this episode is Sean Godsell from Sean Godsell Architects based in Victoria. Sean is one of Australia's most celebrated architects who won the Australian Institute of Architects Gold Medal in 2022 for his contribution to the profession. In this interview, Sean shares what he went through designing projects for people without housing, how producing these projects provoked conversation and debate around the associated issues of housing people in need, and how working on these smaller projects affected the design of some of Sean's larger public projects. I'll now hand over to Hilary Duff, who is an Imagine representative based in Victoria. Let's jump in. Good morning, Sean. Thank you so much for making time to speak to us today. We're um, very excited to hear some of your stories. My pleasure, Hilary. I'm looking forward to it. So, Sean, you've recently won the Institute's Gold Medal. You're nationally and internationally recognised as an architect with a career spanning some beautifully executed and highly detailed projects that are quite unique to our Australian landscape. But for an architect that has offered and is perhaps most well known for some significant public buildings or beautiful high-end residences, I wondered if you could tell us a bit about how your journey of developing some of your more compassionate architecture offerings, how did they come about? Well, there's, there's a long history to answer that question. I really need to go back to my student days, a project that I designed just around the time I graduated, which became Future Shack. And at that time, I was, well, all of us in the mid-80s were interested in something other than postmodernism. And the Weisenhof sidling housing scheme in Germany was an interesting post-World War I attempt at identifying the potential for mass production in housing, for housing after a, a world crisis, a world war. So... I thought that was really interesting. It was interesting investigation into modernism as well as an investigation into the needs for housing post a traumatic event. So a traumatic event in that case was a war, but it might have been an earthquake or a cyclone or hurricane or floods. What's the role of the architect in that interstitial period between devastation and rebuilding? So Future Shack came out of that and originally it was the idea of using the shipping container as a, as a building module, as a ubiquitous item, not only the, the container being ubiquitous, but the infrastructure to handle containers being found globally. And it became the basis of a, an idea that ended up being a single module, mass-produced, relocatable form of housing that could be stockpiled when it wasn't in use. So... I'd always been interested in that part of the history of modernism. In the case of Future Shack, mass production was legitimate. In the case of Weisenhof, the architecture was made to a large degree to appear to be mass produced. 
So the challenge of, of making something over and over and providing a substantial short-term shelter was something that I investigated with that project. And then in 1986, I left Melbourne, bought a one-way ticket, went to London with plans to work at Norman Foster's office. I worked there for three days and when time came to finalise my salary, I decided I couldn't live on £7,000 a year and work 12 hours a day, six days a week, which was the deal. So I left there and uh, ended up at Dennis Lesson's office, which was a lot of fun for a, a number of years. And I lived in Portobello Road in Notting Hill. Some people listening to this will know Portobello Road and Portobello Market. If you're a tourist in London, you end up there at some point. That meant that I had to catch the tube to work going down Portobello Road and ending up at Notting Hill Gate. And every morning for most of the year in London at Notting Hill Gate Station, the homeless were sitting on the steps of the station, having slept there, having attempted to get inside the station to get out of the weather. So you would navigate your way around the homeless people on the steps to get into the station. And it struck me as cruel. Um, And then if you got into the station, you found that the seats on the platforms were made out of moulded plastic with armrests so that you couldn't lie on them. And then I noticed that, you know, in parks like Hyde Park, all of the timber benches had steel studs on them so you couldn't lie down comfortably. And it started me thinking about the meanness in those design decisions and the lack of compassion in the in the design of urban infrastructure generally, and in particular those encounters in, in any city where people who are displaced or have nowhere to go, even on the street by choice, gravitate towards urban infrastructure as a means of sustenance. And so projects like Park Bench House and the Bus Shelter House and Picnic Table House are really comments on, on that reality. Interesting, and I wonder if you could explain how on your return to Melbourne, which is, you know, it's often been touted as the world's most livable city, which I think you've been noted to comment that that's the fact, provided you have a place to live. So within the Australian context, how did these projects develop? When the opportunity arose in the office, we made Future Shack. That was a fascinating exercise in getting an idea off the drawing board and getting it to work to the point where it was published, the Smithsonian in America through the Cooper Hewitt Design Museum in New York invited me to exhibit it there. And so we tested it by putting it on the back of a truck and getting it to a ship in Melbourne and sailing it to Oakland in California and then putting it on a train and getting it from Oakland to New York into the Bronx where it was put on the back of a truck and taken to Fifth Avenue and put into the garden of the Cooper Hewitt Museum. So the proposition that it could be transported and and re-erected was tested and ultimately it was packed up again and put in reverse and brought all the way back to Melbourne. So that was interesting because it proved that it was a feasible project in that respect was also exciting because we got to shut down Fifth Avenue for a night while we put the building into the garden of the Cooper Hewitt, which was, (laughs) I can remember at the time thinking this is probably going to be the only time in my life that I'm responsible for shutting down Fifth Avenue. And then it was on exhibit there for a number of months and um, 
so it, it drew attention to the project and it was well documented in the press and so on. And then the next time we had an opportunity to make something along those lines was the park bench house. So we had some spare money, so we made the park bench house prototype and started testing it. I was probably a bit more adventurous in those days. We just took it into a park to photograph it. Lorraine, who was in the office at the time, modelled for us. She got into the bench and demonstrated its capacity to act as a temporary shelter. And we photographed all of that in the park on the other side of the casino in Melbourne. So we had the casino in the background to make a point that if you're in the casino too much, you could end up in the park bench house if you're not careful. And in fact, at one point, we met with homeless people at St Mary's House of Welcome in Brunswick Street and we chatted with a bunch of homeless guys and one guy was very articulate and he said he, said he was very grateful that we'd considered the needs of the homeless. And I, I said, do you mind if I ask how you ended up becoming homeless? And he said, I spent far too much time at the casino. And he said, I lost everything and now I, now I live on the, on the street. So that sort of reality is, is ever-present in any city. I'm getting to, back to your question of Melbourne and, and livability. So the Park Bench House, we prototyped. Somebody, somebody did include it in their PhD on homelessness. We put it into the Institute of Architects Award for New Houses. The challenge was, what's a house? And I wanted to make a point that architects deal in an elite part of the community, typically. We do one to one and a half percent of the new houses in the country. We design buildings for well-heeled people who can afford our services and the other 99% of the population don't talk to us or use us, despite the fact that we believe and often delude ourselves into believing that we're the most relevant people in the community. And so the point that I wanted to make was for some people, a house is wherever you can put your head at night and a house might be a doorway and it might be a bench. And rather than doing what I'd observed was done in London and other cities, let's not just blame London, uh, where things like benches in parks were made impossible to lie on, I, I said, why don't we make them easy to turn into overnight shelters? It might involve a little bit more work from the council in terms of, you know, moving people on when, when daytime breaks and, and people want to use the bench as a bench. But if it's an overnight scenario, I don't think people typically sit in parks in the middle of the night. Why not make it a convertible bench that provides you shelter from the wind and the rain and gives you a safe place to lie down? So that project came about that way and it was poking the bear to put it into the Institute's new house category, but it caused a stir. It was interesting that the press covered it and the people who were most outraged were the organisations who were charged with dealing with homelessness. And, and I found that interesting that they were affronted by this proposal. You know, how dare this architect suggest that urban infrastructure be convertible and adaptable? And really... Uh, the mistake that they were making was that they accused me of trying to solve homelessness with this scheme. And I had to correct them in the, in the press as well and let them know that I wasn't trying to solve homelessness because no one can. Homelessness is a reality. It's a grim reality 
and it's a fact of life for some people. And our cities generally need to be more compassionate to that fact. And so if we can design in the homeless by embracing them and making our infrastructure welcoming for their grim reality, then we're doing a good thing. And so the project was nearly tried by two councils, by City of Port Phillip in particular. They, they were very keen on it. And then, you know, the lawyers and the insurance companies and, and, and others got involved with the concern that if they were actively promoting spaces for homeless people and homeless people were attacked or injured, that they would be held liable, which I, I thought was frankly quite pathetic, but that was the reality of it. And Bus Shelter House came out out of the same thinking. We did Bus Shelter House as part of Melbourne Fringe, the Artful Dodgers, the Jesuit-based art group, approached the office and said, would you do a a scheme loosely themed on homelessness for um, exhibition in the forecourt of the National Gallery? And so we designed the Bus Shelter House Bus shelters and tram stops in Melbourne are also ubiquitous. They're everywhere. They provide a roof. They're they're a go-to place if you've got nowhere else to go. And the bus shelter house was quite sophisticated. It had a bench with a a lid that lifted up to, to reveal a stainless steel mattress. The lid provided shelter and the roof of the shelter provided some shelter as well. And then the advertising hoarding, dispensed space blankets, those shiny blankets that are wrapped around people when they're found lost in the snow. The agenda was that it would dispense hot water and a cup of tea and that the billboard, instead of advertising commercial product, was a a gallery space for emerging artists. So in that one little nuancing of 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 an established bit of urban infrastructure, we were dealing with struggling artists, we were dealing with homeless people and we were providing them with a bed and a blanket and a cup of tea. The things that we'd learnt from the park bench house in consultation with homeless people was that the the most vulnerable part of sleeping rough was um, the feeling that you would have your head kicked in and that your head was the most vulnerable part of your body. And so the subtleties in the bus shelter house included a solid steel armrest that you could put your head against so your head was safe when you were trying to get some sleep. The Melbourne Specific, I wrote an essay called Any Port in a Storm, which was an attack on the city of Melbourne's treatment of the homeless during the Commonwealth Games in 2006, where miraculously in the weeks leading up to the Commonwealth Games, the city got cleaned up and suddenly we didn't see any homeless people for quite some time. And my question was, where, where did they go? What did you do with them? And and if you could do something with them for the Commonwealth Games, why can't you do something with them permanently? So, yes, Melbourne kept winning that prize, but as you mentioned in your introduction, it's the most livable city provided you've got somewhere to live. And in the kind of weather that we've got in Melbourne right now, I can't imagine anything more distressing than not having somewhere to, to sleep at night. And... If the theme of the discussion today is compassion, then empathy comes into that. And as architects, we're better when we're more empathetic to the needs of our client, to the needs of the community, and in terms of the homeless, to the reality in society that a percentage of our population tonight in Melbourne in freezing conditions won't have anywhere to sleep.
And I don't believe we can actually solve that. We can address it in a number of ways and those projects are simply addressing it in, in terms of urban infrastructure. I think your phrase of trying to design those who have no homes, designing them into our cities rather than excluding them, it's almost a bizarre conundrum that public infrastructure, it's provided for the amenity of the public. You know, Generally, it's about a place to sit, a place to shelter during the day. You know, we we put them in train stations and parks so that you can kind of sit and wait and be comfortable. But then we observe these little studs and and metal handlebars and things to to kind of make them specifically uncomfortable to those who are most in need. It's confrontational too. If you're sitting in a park having your lunch and a homeless person who's probably got an associated substance abuse issue comes and sits next to you and starts talking gibberish at you. It's intimidating, it's confronting and it's uncomfortable. And and it's as much about our community getting past that point and engaging rather than shunning and running away. And the those design decisions to put studs or moulded plastic seats or whatever they are, are uh, uh, to shun. They're to say, you're smelly, you're dirty, you're incoherent, we don't want you here. That's great, but where, if not here? If you've got nowhere else to go and you're caught out rough and, and in the cold, what do you do? So if those bits of infrastructure can act like beacons, then that essay, any port in a storm, makes sense because if you're caught in rough seas, any mooring is welcome. So the Dignified Rubbish Bin was a project that was about that. So the Dignified Rubbish Bin, and in a slightly different way, the Picnic Table House argued the fact that homeless people are drawn to um, rubbish bins in, in cities particularly because the bin becomes a source of sustenance. There might be some leftover food. There might be a, a half-drunk drink bottle. So one of the most undignified things a human can do is stick their head in a bin for their evening meal. So we made a we designed a parasite, a, an attachment to rubbish bins in the CBD that was a dispensary for leftover food from restaurants. So at the end of the evening, when restaurants have leftover food, what happens to it? Well, it could be packaged up and put into a dispenser. The homeless people know that this dispenser is located in a, in a spot that they're aware of anyway, and they go to it and they, and they get something to eat. Um, again, all of the legislation and rules that prohibit that kind of thinking came into the discussion and we effectively abandoned the project. We had a restaurant in the CBD in Melbourne who were interested in participating, but the realities of, of Health Act and that sort of thing cut across it. But that's the idea that um, I think we talked about it at one point as the city being like a sponge Cities absorb so much and and if you squeeze them a little, they can give back a huge amount. It's a question of whether you're prepared to squeeze them and 
whether the cities themselves are prepared to go along for the ride. You know, we all kind of dream and hope for a world where the rules and legislations can be put to one side if the greater good is is achieved. But Well, that's Plato, isn't it? Yeah. Plato is saying that it judges society on how it treats its underclass. Mm. Have any of these projects been tested in the wild? In the wild? Yeah. <laughs> in the jungle? They've lived in museums. They've, they've travelled down Fifth Avenue, but have, have they been tried and tested on the streets? Park Bench House was tested in the Treasury Gardens for a few days and people were interviewed, people test drove it, for want of a better term. Future Shack, no, uh, although we still get inquiries about people wanting Future Shacks. You know, that's 30 years later. Bus Shelter House nearly got tried by the City of Melbourne, but again, for those reasons that I mentioned before, they pulled the pin on it at the last moment. That ended up at the McClellan Gallery. Park Bench House ended up at the Footscray Arts Community Arts Centre. Future Shack ended up in the in someone's farm. Wow. <laughs> Picnic Table House we didn't build, and nor did we do the dignified rubbish bin. The Picnic Table House is in the permanent collection of the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. Mm-hmm. And it was part of an exhibition that we were invited to participate in about 12 or 13 years ago now. And that, that raised the ire of commentators and critics as well. So the argument was that picnic tables can be easily converted into shelter and it was a reasonably sophisticated proposal for that and the sort of comments we got was, oh, how disgusting, what if you wanted to have a picnic and there was a homeless person in, in the shelter? So I don't know whether that's an architectural problem or a societal one. What if someone wants to sleep in your chair? Yeah, exactly. We ran a, um, a design studio at Melbourne Uni a few years ago. Haley and I ran a studio for thesis students and we set, set them a site at the top of Burke Street in Melbourne which has a laneway that's a notorious homeless hangout and drug dealers hangout. And we set the brief for um, students to design a, a refuge for homeless women. So we wanted to highlight the plight of um, homeless women, women who are abused at home, who ha- are forced to leave home. And it raised a lot of really interesting conversation, questions to the students should we provide parking in the building? So it's a multi-storey community building with um, refuge housing in it because currently the City Council has an agenda to get cars out of the CBD. And everyone said, oh, no, we don't want cars. We've got to have bikes and we've got to have trams. And we said, but for women who've been abused and have left their house, often the car is their home. So the car becomes a, a refuge. Everyone rethought it and suddenly all their schemes had parking. Parking levels in some schemes had um, ATMs and phone charges. So you could actually escape your plight, park in the car park, organise yourself from your car and move into the building that way. I mean, there are other great schemes out there. I'm thinking of the the mobile uh, laundry trucks that drive around and and give the homeless people the opportunity to wash their clothes. I mean, what a great idea that is. Mm. I think it's great that, I mean, even if if none of the projects are built physically, it's it's the conversations 
are started. It's the students who participate in in these studios, getting people thinking. It's to make people angry. Maybe that's a, a reckless thing to say, and I'm not inciting marching in the streets necessarily, but as architects, if we're prepared to tackle those sticky problems, then we have to do it from the point of view of we're as mad as hell and we're going to take this anymore. You know, we have to be incensed and demand change. And the way architects affect change is in what we design and build. And the same applies certainly in my office in terms of climate. And we, we in our office, are very angry about climate in a good way. And every time we do a building, every time we step up to the plate, we demand of ourselves that we can do everything possible for the particular project with respect to climate. So these are the issues of our day. And architects are only meaningful if we tap into the zeitgeist, understand what's important, and then respond accordingly. And that's all we can do. We're we're not going to solve homelessness, as I said before. We're not going to solve climate change, but we can address the issue because we're given the privilege and the honour of getting to change the built environment. And what what an amazing thing to get to do. Mm. I think, you know, every student that's heading into architecture, they, they do it for a reason. And part of that is about being able to make a difference. We want to make the world a better place. I mean, architects dream of a better place and then we try to build it. And to a degree, that demands a level of naivety and a, and a belief in, in a utopian existence. Mm-hmm. And of course we fall short, but we always get up and keep going towards a better community, a better environment, a better society, buildings that perform better, buildings that are ethically better, buildings that place the smallest possible demand on the environment. All those things should be informing everything that we do as architects. Um, That keeps us relevant in terms of the zeitgeist, as I mentioned, but also culturally because we're building our future. Hmm. I wonder when you are designing these projects or, or thinking about these things, some of them are quite, I guess, radical or they're confronting. Some of the imagery, I think, of the bus shelter house had it popped right out the front of NGV. You know, you have to walk around that to, to enter our main gallery. And there are logistical and social issues that easily come to mind when you consider the schemes. Did you always expect them to be built or is there an element of them as a, a statement to kind of reinvigorate the discussion and the debate? Uh, both. My office expects to build. We build in this office. There's no such thing as unbuilt architecture. Architecture is, is manifest in, in the third dimension. So we demand to build. And we're at our best as an office when we build. So, yes, those projects that have been prototyped are meaningful because they're, they're constructed, they're actual. You can lie in the park bench house, you can lie in the bus shelter house, you can live in the future shack. So that gives them meaning. Ideas on paper can be fanciful and meaningless because they can't become manifest. And so 
yes, we did, but at the same time, in each of those projects, as an office, we were very aware that we were provoking and deliberately provoking and demanding a discussion. And as I mentioned before, in the case of the discussions that we've had with homeless people, giving the homeless people a voice where they have no expectation that they will ever be heard because they see themselves as irrelevant in society. So that was probably one of the most confronting times I've had in my whole practising life was when that fellow said, I can't believe that you're thinking of us. And why, as a profession, wouldn't we do that? Mm. Yeah, big question, I think. I wonder if you could tell us more about these conversations you've had with, with users. Have you, along the way, gone and spoken to people for for the purposes of research, for the purposes of prototyping? Yeah, it's confronting to do that and it's imposing as well. You have to be very considered in how you do that and the, and the way we've acquired knowledge has been as discreet as possible as well. There are parallel realities in those schemes. The parallel realities is that I've got to put food on my table as well. I have to make a living making buildings and I have to sustain the office and the income to the office. So the time available to dedicate to those kinds of projects that we're talking about today can be limited and sometimes impossible to do. And and with that comes access to to discussion and conversation. And so when we've had those opportunities, uh, they've been incredibly valuable and at the same time quite confronting. And coupled with those conversations has been the ongoing observation. And I I use a well-worn um, Louis Sullivan quote about the role of architects in, in society as being good observers, observers of our psychological aspirations and our material needs. That's what architects do. And so the ongoing acquisition of knowledge about the problem of homelessness is gained by observation as well. And if you're attuned to it and you see, especially where our office is in Gertrude Street in Fitzroy, we're literally just around the corner from where the sisters provide food for the homeless every day in their little facility in George Street. And you see the queue in the laneway behind the facility at about three o'clock, four o'clock each day. If you are attuned to that, then you see that in every city. And so it's not a it's not a Melbourne-specific problem at all. It's a world problem. And we're in the first world. Imagine the third world. So I think those things are important. They can't be everything in practice, but I think we're a better profession if we embrace those issues and address them as often as we possibly can. Mm. I think it's very aspiring to hear that officers can make time. There's two of you working extremely hard in your, your office producing beautiful buildings and you still can make time to consider these really important problems. It's not about the size of the office. It's about the passion and Haley and I are both very passionate about what we do and so when we tackle a problem, we don't give it, you know, less than the full treatment. Mm-hmm. So if we decide that there's a problem worth addressing, then we go pretty hard. How do you find that these projects sit side by side 
where, you know, at one point in time, you might be spending the majority of your work life designing for the really expensive, beautiful houses for the wealthy. Well, it's it has a has a number of positive impacts. So you design the house for the wealthy person who can't get the internet connection. You can contextualise that as a first world problem. They'll get the connection eventually, and it'll be worked out. Or the there's a squeaky door where you can oil the door. Right. So that means that we we can most of the time can make a meaningful context to those problems that are not problems at all, really. They're just the day-to-day of of making bespoke buildings. It helps us keep our feet on the ground as an office, which is really important. I mean, people don't know my office very well and we keep the door closed on the public and and other practitioners. We're a very private office, deliberately so, and, and we'll stay that way. But we're a very well-known office and and we're approached regularly for people to know more about the office. But the reality is the doors are closed because we're working hard and we don't want to be distracted from what we're working on. And for all the publicity and all the prizes, those realities of those projects keep us grounded and keep us thinking about a broader context for the role of the architect in society. So they have positive effects and they also are informative. On a really fundamental level, on an ethereal level, to go back to that question of what is a house, wherever I put my hat, that's my home, to quote a line from somebody's song, I can't remember who it is, that fundamental things in a a bespoke house can be that simple you know, a comfortable seat in the sun, a place to have a rest during the day. All of those inform bespoke building, but they can also be important to somebody who's sleeping rough. So, yeah, they're, they're imp- important um, on, on that level. With public work, you've designed M Pavilion in, in Melbourne, which is very public and accessible to all. You've done tertiary work. Are there elements that you try to weave in all this this kind of empathetic and compassionate thinking when you are looking at how the general public approaches and moves through and around building? I imagine that the thinking follows through. Yeah, I mean, at a larger scale, you don't lose the, the human scale. So in in bigger projects, um, the reality uh, is that individuals are still accessing buildings and using them. A building like the Design Hub has a, a deliberate concession to the inter- intermediate and interstitial spaces. The agenda for cross-pollination of, of exchanges in that building was deliberate. And so in the primary circulation spaces, which double as breakout spaces and meeting spaces and so on, there's there's always built-in seating. So it's a really simple gesture towards the fact that you might want to just prop somewhere in a building for a moment. Uh, when you enter that building, there's a continuous seat through the ent- entry foyer and it's nice to observe people, you know, in conversation on seats like that. In that building, the strategy for circulation was that all the circulation 
would be able to be adapted for exhibitions, for pinups, for critiques, and so on. So the analysis of that as a proposition is, well, what do I need for, for that to occur? And so that's a level of empathy in a different context. And empathy in architecture exists and is now legislated for, some would say to a ridiculous degree, with things like access. And good architects have always understood the need for the ease of access and movement through buildings, but that's a that's another example at that sort of scale where we're spending as a profession more and more time on, on the access requirements in buildings. But to be compassionate on a really fundamental level in buildings means that the transition through the building is as easy as possible. That's the magic trick in the design hub is that the circulation is continuous. It's diametric. It's longer than it needs to be in part, which creates the illusion of more space than actually exists in the building. There's a a lot of sophistication in the design of the circulation in that building, for example. Oh, it's a wonderful building and a very key location in our city as well. You nearly can't see it anymore. It's surrounded by monsters. (laughs) Our city is changing. Sure, maybe a question to round out the interview is any tips or advice as to how aspiring designers or architects might be able to be more compassionate or ethical in their everyday practice of architecture? Aside from building a homeless shelter or or one of these kind of prototypical projects, do you have any advice to how we can be more compassionate? In any problem in architecture, a good architect imagines themselves in that scenario. You know, what would I like? What What do I do when I arrive home? What's important to me when I sit down? And how do I like to exist in a teaching space or an exhibition space or and drive the problem solving from that very personal point of view? The thing behind all of that is that you have to be a well-informed member of the public and with that information comes empathy. And with empathy, or the combination of empathy and imagination means that you can place yourself in, in any scenario in your imagination and then find solutions so you know if I was advising a young architect along those lines I would say you should be reading a lot you should be going to exhibitions going to movies engaging with this the community and society on as many levels as possible reading non-architecture as well as architecture and understand the world in a much broader context and then apply your imagination to particular design problems because you'll be drawing on a, on a rich encyclopedia if you've managed to inform yourself along the way. That's wonderful. That's a sage piece of advice. I think I also like to imagine that little section in the middle of the Venn diagram of imagination, research and, and empathy. That's, that's a sweet spot. Hopefully we can all create some kind of special magical projects that come from that position. Well, we try. We've got a dream. We've got a dream and hope. They're important things and the world's in a really rough spot at the moment. So it's more important than ever that we dream and hope. Mm. Well, that's um, some words of action, I think, to wrap up the interview. 
Thank you so much, Sean. It's been wonderful to, to have a bit of a chat. My pleasure, Hilary. It was a lot of fun. I hope we got some useful things out of it. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our guest in this episode, Sean Godsell. It was wonderful to hear about the empathetic work you produced in this complex space and we can't wait to see your future work when it's revealed to the public. Sean will also be presenting his work during his gold medal tour in 2022, so please visit architecture.com.au to register for tickets in your state or territory. Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produce architecture podcasts hosted by modernist fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. And the Imagine production team was Hilary Duff, Kimberly Huey and Max Legal-White. This interview was edited by Pete Carter at Pillow Fort Audio Productions. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.